Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, May 4th. May the 4th be with you. We begin with a look at the plan to reopen the Alberta economy. Trevor Toome, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, shares his thoughts on the timing. Then we continue our discussion on the stages of openings in our province. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician, tells us what we can expect when it comes to health care during this first stage. Next, we look at an interesting new study that aims to determine if COVID-19 can, in fact, be transmitted through the air. We hear details on a project headed by mechanical engineers, which looks at the possibility of airborne transmission through HVAC systems. And finally, we travel to High River for the latest on the Cargill processing plant, which has reopened as of today. We get the latest from Global Calgary's Doug Vason on why the union is opposed to the plan to get back to business. 8.12 on the morning news. When this COVID-19 pandemic starts to wind down, we'll need to have a serious discussion about the pro- uh, province's budget. With his views on Alberta's economy, we're joined by Associate Professor of Economics at the U of C and Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy, Trevor Toome. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning. Well, this uh, might be a loaded question, but the Premier says Alberta's budget deficit this year may triple from $7 billion to almost $20 billion. Are you concerned by these numbers? Well, first, he's not exaggerating. When he says $20 billion, it is roughly where it looks like we're headed right now, just because we're going to have a big drop in revenue, not just from the COVID-related restrictions and the drop in employment and income, which means lower income taxes, but we rely heavily on resource revenues. And so when oil prices fall as much as they have, that cuts into those revenues. Combine that with some added costs to deal with the pandemic, and you're easily around $20 billion. That, that does concern me a lot, not because I think there's a short-term challenge for the province to, to borrow and carry that additional debt, but there's not a clear path back to balance anymore. Uh, if we just... Uh, Think about where we were planning to be in 2022, which is when the government was hoping to balance. That year, we're now looking at around nine, potentially $10 billion in deficit that year. So I'm very concerned about the longer run trajectory. We do need a plan, uh, which we currently don't have. What What would it be, Trevor? Do we look at a, is it time? Do we look at the dreaded PST? Do we think about an HST? What, what is your thought on that? Well, that depends on how uh, quickly you want to get back to balance and how you want to do it. If we continue the government's current approach of maintaining a spending freeze, uh, then it would take potentially to about 2026 until we balance. So four years later than scheduled, which basically means we have done twice as much spending restraint than the government plan to do. So if we want to balance earlier or if we don't want to cut back on public services as much, then we do need new revenues, and the, the most efficient and stable source is indeed a sales tax. Since we can increase the GST uh, from its current 5% rate, we can increase that to 6 or 7 uh, and balance sooner or have less spending restraint. Okay, I might just be throwing this one at you, but what, what would a 1% GST or maybe a 2% GST increase bring in revenue-wise? Can we even uh, tally that? Yeah, uh, so we know exactly how much we bring in because Alberta does have a sales tax right now. It's just entirely federal. That's the GST. So we, it's 5% right now. We know how much the federal government brings in off of that. It's about a billion dollars per point. So if Alberta were to add increments above the current 5% sales tax rate, say to 7 then the Alberta government would get $2 billion per year. 
Is that the best way to do it? Would you think an HST or just adding on to the GST, you know, instead of creating a PST on its own? Absolutely. Creating a separate PST system on its own doesn't make any sense for Alberta, uh, given that the federal government already implements and administers a sales tax. We just add an increment to that rate. It would be free for the Alberta government to do. But if we were to set up our own parallel system, we would have to administer that separate forms for companies. We have to hire a bunch more public servants in Edmonton in order to enforce and process and so on. Uh, So it just makes all sorts of sense to piggyback on what the federal government already does. Not to be a gloom and doom over this, but is this a case that uh, every Albertan to to a large extent should be expecting to pay more in taxes and uh, get maybe even just a little less than we've already been getting for our dollars? I think there's no way around it. Historically, we spend uh, an above average level on public services in Alberta, and we tax a below average level, and resource revenues have made up that gap. So we've been enjoying this um, privilege, I guess, if you will, of having resource revenues flow in and us benefiting from that. But with oil prices low, with that projected to stay low for quite some time, uh, we do need to bridge that gap ourselves. That does either mean paying more or it means getting less for what we do pay because there's only those two sides of the budget, revenue and spending. So when the premier calls it a fiscal reckoning, I think that's exactly what it is. And there's going to be some hard conversations that we need to have in the coming months and, and potentially years. It's likely a discussion we'll have with you again. Thanks for joining us, Trevor. My pleasure, anytime. That's Trevor Toome, Associate Professor of Economics at the U of C. We've started the process of opening up slowly in Alberta. So this morning we thought we'd check in with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician, and uh, find out what that looks like from a medical perspective. He joins us this morning. Hi, Dr. J. Good morning. Let's talk about this gradual reopening during a pandemic. We're still, you know, in the midst of things for sure. What does this look like from your perspective? Uh, well, it's it's time that we do this, and we have to test drive this. Other provinces are a little bit ahead of us because they've had less numbers. We in Calgary have had higher numbers, so we have to potentially be a little bit more careful. But it's a relaunch strategy. It's slow. It's deliberate. It's incremental. But it has to, it has to happen at some point, so we've deemed it to be the point now. And when you say it has to happen, uh, Dr. Jablonski, let's talk about that. Your personal thoughts, because... If we waited a month, some people would say it's too long. If we uh, started to reopen yeah. things uh, weeks ago, it would be way too early. Is there a perfect yeah, time? No, there's never a perfect time. But I think the, the longer we, um, we move into this, the, the more we realize we, um, this is going to come and go. Uh, there are going to be waves. And we are in this perhaps for the next year and a half, two years uh, the fall coming up, winter is going to be potentially worse than the original wave. There's just so much ahead of us, and we're not talking weeks or months anymore. We are now talking in, in Syrian years. So given that, uh, essential services have to continue. Uh, some medical, some dental, some rehab, these uh, things have to sort of continue on in, a, in as safe a manner as we can. Uh, so this first, the, the first step will be opening up a physiotherapy, urgent dental, 
uh, elective surgeries that are non-urgent that have been shut down are now going to start to open and uh, eye exams or ophthalmology. And these are all, I guess, relatively safe if you can screen patients, if you can uh, plan and, and do everything accordingly uh, to, a, to a sort of a game plan that's well set out. Um, I think this is a relatively uh, safe thing to do as a first step. And we're going to find out if it's a good first step yeah. or not two weeks from now. Now, have you heard, is, are they going to be taking temperatures or that sort of thing as people go into these offices? How is that going to work? I, I assume every every um, sort of clinic, every uh, setup will have it, uh, their own uh, protocols and procedures. Um, I know a lot of clinics are already taking temperatures right at the door. You know, um, you get to uh, clean your hands, you get to have a temperature taken. Um, some clinics, and again, I, I don't want to overstate, uh, if clinics have uh, adequate supply of PPE, I know some are giving patients uh, masks uh, at the front, uh, sort of front desk, uh, so they have them coming in. Uh, other clinics may not have that kind of supply, so may not be able to do that. Patients may be told. And this is where um, if you book, are booking something, just be very clear. What are the instructions? Uh, when should I show up? What shall I expect? And each clinic or each, uh, uh, you know, say in the hospital, if it's an elective surgery, they will have a very specific procedure and protocol that people will have to follow, which might be quite different than what people are used to up to this point in time. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. J. We appreciate it. Uh, you betcha. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. 6.49, and with a COVID-19 pandemic across the nation update, we're joined by Global's Ottawa correspondent, Abigail Beeman. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. Well, let's start with the Prime Minister uh, expected to address the nation, uh, not once, uh, but twice this morning. Tell us about these uh, two different uh, pressers, if you will. Yeah, that's right. So uh, unusual day hearing from him twice in one morning, but in about 10 minutes time, it's actually the European Union that's holding an online news conference and uh, the Canadian Prime Minister will be giving some remarks as part of that news conference. The EU is pushing today for an online pledging uh, process. They're looking to raise seven and a half billion euros. That's about 11 and a half billion Canadian dollars in the fight against coronavirus. Uh, of course, looking at vaccine development as well as treatment uh, and other mitigation efforts uh, for this virus. So we'll find out in a few minutes time whether Canada is making any uh, financial commitment here. Um, but uh, we know that Justin Trudeau is one of the signatories on the letter that was put out about this uh, from the EU calling for this uh, really drive to bring the world together uh, to help in the fight against this virus. And then we also know that in his regular address, which will be a few minutes later at 1130 Eastern instead of 1150, uh, the Prime Minister is expected to focus on this uh, push from the EU as well. So that'll be 9.30 our time. We will go to that live as we do every weekday. Uh, Abigail, some provinces starting to reopen very slowly today. Alberta is one of them. What are you hearing from across the country on that? That's right. It's really interesting uh, because, as you say, this is really uh, happening differently in every single province. Uh, Alberta would be one of the provinces taking the the smallest or babyest steps, let's mm -hmm. say, in that in that it's uh, um, non-essential medical services, dentists, you know, allowed to to reopen. I think a lot of people are watching what's happening in Quebec. Uh, Quebec having so many cases and 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 such a big issue with coronavirus there, but yet 
Quebec is taking some of the biggest steps towards reopening. So today in Quebec, outside the greater Montreal area, businesses are allowed to reopen. Of course, the Montreal area is the hardest hit by coronavirus. That's today. But then a week from today, on May 11th, schools are reopening in Quebec outside the Montreal area. So a lot of people, uh, there's been a lot of talk about whether that's the right decision. A lot of people will be watching um, what happens uh, in Quebec going forward. Contrast that with the East Coast, for example, where they've had much fewer or much lower case numbers. They're in at least two provinces, New Brunswick and Newfoundland. They're talking about the double bubble method. So picture every family has one bubble and you're allowed to interact with one other family, expanding your your bubble or crossing your bubble with one other group. So different methods being talked about uh, right across the province. But but the unifying um, element here is what we'll watch for as provinces take these steps towards uh, returning to some form of normalcy. And Dr. Teresa Tam, the chief public health officer, was asked about this on the weekend. And she said that what she will be looking for is obviously the caseload. Are we seeing numbers go up? Are they are they staying stable? Are they dropping? Uh, caseload testing, which is very important. And then, of course, healthcare capacity. So do we have uh, the right number of ICU beds, of ventilators? So far, it's not been the hospitals that have been maxed out. Rather, it's been, sadly, the long-term care homes that we're seeing uh, having so many issues. The hospitals have not yet reached that uh, that capacity level. So those are the things that experts will be watching for as each province takes their own steps towards reopening. Abigail, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks. That is Abigail Beeman, Global's Ottawa correspondent. The novel coronavirus is mainly spread through close contact, but a group of mechanical engineers at the University of Alberta are now looking at a lesser-known possibility, airborne transmission. One of those involved in the study is Brian Fleck, a professor of mechanical engineering at the U of A. Hi, Brian. Hi, how are you doing today? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. So, you know, as we look at this, other than the obvious of uh, simply understanding this novel coronavirus better, how would you apply what you might learn, whether this is an airborne virus? How do you, how do you apply that into real life? Well, um, we're focused on heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. We use the acronym HVAC for that. And those are mechanical systems that move air around in enclosed spaces. And as you know, humans share a lot of um, air together. And we tend to inhale and exhale, and we, we find ourselves breathing the same air. And uh, this is essentially the potential for transmission that we'd like to uh, get a handle on. Uh, even just this week, um, the body that governs um, heating, refrigeration, and air conditioning engineering put out a notice uh, on the 20th of April saying that there is significant risk of airborne transmission of the SARS-CoV-19 uh, um, virus. So we just want to make sure we understand this and uh, we're getting in, in on top of the risks. So we've heard time and time again that, you know, it's spread by touching things, touching the same thing as somebody who's infected. But we've also heard a lot about the droplets. So is the thought behind it that the droplets could be small enough to actually become airborne and carry through the equipment? Is, is that the uh, research? That's it, yes. So um, droplets... The, the process which we call atomization is where droplets are formed. And just like in a spray bottle or anything like that, somebody coughing or sneezing, 
droplets are formed in a wide range of sizes. So the big ones fly through the air and land on somebody else or land on the ground. And and that's where they came up with the two-meter distance. That's mm-hmm. where most of the droplets uh, end up being safely either on a surface or on the ground. But at the same time, very small droplets are, are formed. And these very small ones have the potential to have virus load in them. And they're so small that the effective gravity on them is essentially negligible. And they can float around and they behave just like air. This is the word aerosol, where it comes from, because it's carried by the air. And those are the ones that could stay airborne for quite a, a long time and find their way around in a shared space, a bunch of people together in a space, or move through the mechanical system and find themselves recirculated back inside a space like a school like an office building like an airplane or maybe like a cruise ship is that what we were seeing on some of these cruise ships then well potentially say with uh, certainty how all the transmissions took place on those cruise ships but certainly something is going on there that is worth looking at and that's how we scientifically look at things i i can't say in advance what we're going to find but we believe there is significant reason to be suspicious that this could be happening. Let's talk, Brian, about this unique collaboration because you bring the mechanical engineering portion, you and your team, but you're just one piece of the puzzle hoping to solve this problem. Is that right? Yeah, so we, uh, we've we got collaborators from the University of Alberta Facilities Group who are allowing us to use the all of the buildings of the U of A as a living laboratory. That doesn't mean we're putting viruses in the the HVAC systems. We're studying them all and and getting access. That's a great thing. We work with Aero Engineering, which is an engineering company here in Edmonton, who um, their scientific advisors supporting us. And we work with the Faculty of Medicine with Dr. Lisa Hartling in pediatrics, who's an expert in systematic review. Where does the funding come for something like this? And and do you have funding to to look into this? So the funding comes from the Canadian Institute of Health Research um, and Alberta Innovates right now. And um, so we apply for grants and we applied for this grant earlier when we saw this emergency unfolding. And uh, we have pretty tight timelines as research goes to get our results out. So we have three phases. We're going to do this systematic review, which means reviewing thousands of research papers that have been published throughout the world and putting all of those results together and seeing what they say. Second phase is doing lab testing where we look at filters and ducts and find out our own evidence on how droplets can pass through HVAC systems. And then the last phase is uh, analyzing all of the infrastructure of the University of Alberta as an example facility and do a risk analysis because all of these um, uh, buildings where billions of people work and live need to get people back to work safely. And I agree what you said maybe earlier that the um, the risk uh, for airborne transition is or transmission is probably small compared to by touch or large droplets, mm-hmm. but it affects billions of people. So we want to make sure we, we know what those risks are and can give the, the proper advice to people managing large buildings or large numbers of buildings. 
Is this uh, research unique, or are there similar projects going on across the globe, do you think? There are similar projects going on across the globe, and, and I'm so grateful for the news media like you guys for making this public because we've already got, uh, just from our uh, news hits, we get all these people, particularly in the United States, uh, getting messages and emails all the time. People want to collaborate, people doing similar studies down there, um, mostly in the United States because they get our newspapers here. So been really really helpful and uh you know just taking all these calls is is a full-time job i bet well it's important research potentially to keep us safe coming down the road so thank you for joining us and thanks for doing what you're doing you're welcome thank you for having us on really appreciate it that's brian fleck professor of mechanical engineering at the university of alberta 819 now and the union representing workers at the Cargill meatpacking plant near High River issued a scathing note to members Sunday. Marathon talks didn't reach a deal. There's a protest in front of the plant this morning. Global's Doug Vasin is there and he joins us now. Hi, Doug. Good morning, Sue. So what's the latest? What are you seeing and what are you hearing down at Cargill? Well, right now the union is protesting out front of the uh, Cargill gates. Doesn't look like a lot of people are inside. But we're being told by a uh, local union president, 401 president, uh, Thomas Hesse, there are about 50, maybe 80 people who showed up for work. Uh, but he says the vast majority, 85%, are afraid to work, and 80% think there's no way this plant should be opening with all that's been going on, all the positive COVID-19 cases, now numbering 935 at last count from the AHS. What is the union wanting besides the AHS giving the green light? And I'm, I'm not sure where else we go from there. What would they like to see? Well, in speaking with the union, they're upset that this uh, this happened. Uh, Hesse told us that uh, he got notification uh, by an email from the corporate communication people uh, just as they were announcing it publicly. He says there's been no uh, ability to contact uh, each other and find out exactly what measures have been taken, what exactly will take place when workers show up. Now, they've been in mediation. Uh, Occupational Health and Safety has been, Albert, uh, Labor uh, has been pushing for mediation. So they were up till uh, midnight last night. But the union says they're just not getting any information. And so they think it's an unsafe work situation. And that's why they're asking uh, their, um, their union members to be very careful and to maybe request that there be a stop work order because of safety issues. Doug, have there not been press conferences, et cetera, where that information about exactly what they're doing in lining up, you know, what the health requirements are that they're following? Have the, Has that information not been shared publicly? Well, I think that the, it has been shared. Uh, we Certainly last week we heard how they were going to uh, have barriers on buses and only two people per vehicle, one front, one back, and how there would be barriers inside in the locker spaces and at the workstations. But the union says that there's been no guarantees that what they have done would be effective. And so occupational health and safety, we are told just moments ago, went in on Friday, but said, how can they make any judgment about the, the safety of the plant if there's nobody working there and they can't see exactly what the social safe distancing measures uh, will do? So I think the union is concerned. They think it's too soon. I mean, half of the people who work here have come down with COVID-19. So they're concerned that people's lives are at stake and they just think it's it's been a rush to try to get uh, this uh, plant reopened. And we're told that some some cattle will be processed here today, will be slaughtered in the harvest department. We just don't know how much. We don't know how far the efforts have gone to try to make sure that this is a safe work condition. So we're waiting to see, like everyone else, what exactly is going on.
Doug, we were watching your coverage here from the radio studio, and it looks like a very busy scene uh, behind you in the camera shots. Is there an animal rights presence at the plant as well right now? Well, there was. I don't know if they're still here. We've been uh, mostly concerning ourselves with the union and their request that they get better information about work conditions inside. Well, I know when I showed up at uh, 5.30 this morning, there were animal rights uh, groups here uh, with their banners, uh, but I haven't seen them in the last little while. There was also a, a fairly strong police presence that seems to have cooled off as well. Thanks so much, Doug, for joining us. We'll keep listening in to see what you're sharing. Thank you for being here this morning. Um, always my pleasure. Uh, pleasure. Sorry, it's cold. I'm, I'm numbing up. Well, See you later. stay warm. That's Global's <laughs> Doug Vason down in front of the Cargill Meatpacking Plant near High River. 619 now, and we are certainly all aware of the challenges Canadian families are facing, but there are parts of the world that are struggling far more. The price of basic foods rising around the world under this lockdown, and more than 7 million children in Afghanistan are at risk of hunger. We're joined this morning by Timothy Bishop, Save the Children's Afghanistan Director. Good morning, Timothy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So can you tell us, I mean, we, we know full well what's happening across our country. What's happening in Afghanistan right now? So Afghanistan, as you know, is a country that's unfortunately been in a state of war for over two decades. Government forces and opposition Taliban. We're coming out of the winter here. We're moving into what should be spring, what should be a time for crops to be planted and harvested. Unfortunately, at this very time, we have COVID-19 hitting the country. We have people who are normally going to be eating better than they have for the winter time. They're now going to be having less access to food. We're in a lockdown, like lots of the world, and dealing with this COVID crisis. And children are going to be the hardest hit. Hearing that the food prices have um, raised uh, considerably over the past month or so, give us an idea of, of the cost difference now compared to, to previous years. So food has gone up in some cases as much as 50, 70 percent, depending upon the commodity. A lot of Afghanistan's food is brought in from uh, neighboring countries. So a lot of the goods are not even grown here or available here. That transport cost has gone up. The lockdowns are stopping a lot of the transporters from crossing the border from neighboring countries to bring in the goods. Here in the country, a lot of farmers aren't able to get to their uh, farms to do their planting or they can't get the goods to market. So again, you've had in some cases 50, 70% increases in prices. And the big uh, staple food here is a non-bread. And that is getting much more expensive on the local market. So in a country where there's not much money anyway, when there's even a, a minimal price increase, that would mean children, families are at risk then of hunger and starvation. Absolutely. If you think of Afghanistan, the average uh, worker here is a day laborer. He or she goes out of their home on a daily basis, makes a wage that day. If they can't get out of their house because of a lockdown, they can't make money. They can't buy food for their families. And, of course, children are the ones who suffer the most. And, of course, when you talk about uh, an economy like that, there's really no safety net, is there? People are living on the edge, absolutely. And I say day laborers, 70, 80, 90 percent of the Afghanistan economy is an informal economy. Very, no, very little, if, if any, safety net at all. Is there a, a website or a place where we can go if somebody is looking to help out or find out more information, Timothy? 
Absolutely. You can go to savethechildren.net, find out more about what we're doing, not only in Afghanistan, but around the world for children everywhere. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Timothy. Thank you. That is Timothy Bishop, Save the Children's Afghanistan Country Director.